Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp. Nah, just playing, guys. Uh, this is Ben Golver. So here's the deal. Sharp's going to be on vacation or on sabbatical here for the next few weeks. He left me in charge. I agree. It's not the best idea either. But uh, in place of our usual banter, we're going to try to have one episode per week. It's probably going to be a lot of conversations and interviews with other media members uh, trying to take stock of what happened this summer, uh, all of the free agency movement, uh, winners, losers, projections heading into next season, and that'll just carry us over uh, until we get a little bit closer to training camp when Sharp will make his triumphant return. Uh, my first guest uh, this week is going to be Lee Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, I brought out the heavy hitter for you guys. I didn't want you to tune out this summer. Uh, Lee and I are going to talk about Paul George. I'm going to talk about LeBron James few other topics of which he's a you know probably the world's foremost expert at this point uh, and that'll be great so remember keep sending in your emails openfloormail at gmail.com we've got some great ones I promise I'll read some of them on the episodes at various points as we go forward uh, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts as well uh, and hit me up on Twitter anytime in the DMs I'd love to hear from you guys love to hear what you want to see uh, over the next you know two months or so from us all right Without further ado, here's my conversation with Lee Jenkins. We recorded it on Monday, the last day of uh, Las Vegas Summer League. Uh, it's going to be released a little bit later in the week. Well, hey, Lee, last time I saw you, you were protecting your uh, valuable morsels and tidbits in the Bay Area, trying to put together uh, a crazy Kevin Durant story that went up right after the Warriors clinched the finals. I know you spent some time in Oklahoma City recently. You're back in L.A. How is the summer treating you, man? I think it's treating me better than it's treating you. I mean, are you on? Are you on day? What day are you on right now? Thirteen? No. Twenty-three? Thirty-three? No, it's day twelve, and the temperature cooled off uh, a couple of days ago. It was down to about one hundred six. Um, I am seeing stars officially at all times. Anytime I step outside, the, the heat has gotten to me. Um, but. To be honest, this has probably been the fastest and quickest Las Vegas Summer League I've ever been to, Lee, just because Lonzo is a story every single day. I mean, he shows up, LeVar starts cracking on him right off the top about how poorly he's playing. Then he gets a triple-double, which is like never happened. Then he gets injured. Then he bounces back for 36 points. Then he starts changing his shoes. It's It feels like a reality TV show out here, man. Well, that's what they've been doing. I mean, you are, I think you're the president of Summer League and Lonzo's the vice president at this point. But I am amazed, Ben, when you look back at, like, this Lonzo thing, and maybe it's because I, li I live three blocks from UCLA, so I watched basically every <laughs> game they played this season. My kid always wants to go to Pauly, so I'm always in there watching that team. And that guy made so many winning plays this year, just so many plays that there's – like, I did this weird story this year about hustle plays, like hustle stats, and – you know, I was thinking about it through Lonzo, like the prism of Lonzo, because I don't know that it's necessarily hustle or if it like how hard you play or if it's just that feel for the game, that stuff that can't really be quantified. I mean, there are so many loose balls that he gets to, 50-50 plays, like anticipation of key rebounds or key steals. I don't know if he's a great defender or will be that, but he made so many big plays this year on the defensive end that weren't like just being a guy up. It was just kind of a, like freelancing, improvising, finding the ball out of nowhere. So I'm, I don't know why anybody really would be surprised. It's almost like the dad kind of changed his storyline and sort of diminished how people thought about him in a way that I think was kind of reckless. 
Well, see, people love to come at me, Lee, and they say, well, Summer League is meaningless. And I was, and for years, I've defended the event, even when I think I knew deep down maybe it, it was kind of meaningless at times. But you see this week, you know, Rob Polink is coming out and saying, we want the Lakers to play like the Summer League Lakers. Like, that's our goal. We want to have that identity. And basically, we want to just, you know, kind of milk Lonzo for everything he's worth. And you know, the other night, I mean, this guy is just a passer's passer. He had Magic Johnson jumping out of his seat, clapping with one of those, uh, you know, long distance touchdown passes that he likes to throw. The feel, the weight of the passes that he puts on some of these lobs to guys, how he passes to open space, not to a guy specifically. Uh, it's incredible. And you can see his teammates, they're like coming up to speed, right? Like they're fumbling so many of his passes in the first couple of games. And now by games five, six, seven, uh, you know, all of those passes are turning into assists and easy baskets. Uh, the electricity around this team is real. I mean, they, they sold 17,500 tickets uh, to their second game. The fans continue to just show up. Uh, he got a little bit injured with a calf, uh, uh, a calf strain in the semifinals, and the crowd is chanting, we want ball, because they're all just like anxious for him to get back on the court. But you mentioned his dad. and uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you say you're like the first person to write about Lonzo Ball and not actually quote his father? Well, like, so I talked to him not quoted him, but like I spent this week on the road with UCLA back in January, and I, I called his dad, and his dad was great. I mean, I thought he made a ton of good points about player development, about things he did with Lonzo. Like, you know, he didn't. There wasn't a lot of drill work. It was just games, 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 games. He put him in these games when he was like five or six years old. The why with like teenagers and grown men, even moving forward, and he wanted him to play fast, partly because the philosophy was the more possessions, the more decisions, the more he's having to do, and the quicker that'll kind of accelerate development. So that was like a great conversation, and I was seeing like normal LeVar. Then it got later in the conversation, and he kind of started like running down UCLA's team and talking about like <laughs> how much better Lonzo would be if he was like feeding Anthony Davis, pick and roll. And I assumed we were off the record. So I didn't write any of that stuff because I just thought there's no way anybody would really want this out there. And then, of course, months go by and I realize, nope, he probably did want all that out there. It probably was all on the record, which says something about my reporting ability. But, you know, I just, and this, you know, what you said about like the way he plays and I don't, I don't want to like kind of gush about the guy too much after summer league. But, I mean, he turned all these UCLA players who were, you know, some pretty good, I guess, college players and he sort of took them to another level, and it's why I sort of question that D'Angelo Russell trade still. I, I know there were issues with D'Angelo Russell, but I don't know if you know really what a guy's going to be until he's actually been out there and played with ball. And maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe they'd have overlapped. But I still feel like that might have been an opportunity lost for the Lakers. Like, D'Angelo could have been a far different player with Lonzo Ball out there than he ever was without him. And that's just the effects that Ball has on other people, I think, are, are kind of unpredictable. And it's what makes, you know, it's what makes this Laker future exciting. And I'm sure some of what you're seeing with the 17,000 people and all that is just desperation. It's just how long it's been for them since <laughs> they've had anything to get truly excited about. But I do, I do kind of wonder with him, like, I, you know, it's almost like, like baseball, right? You don't know how a guy's going to react in course field, like until he's there, you know, pitcher or a hitter. I sort of feel like there's going to be a Lonzo Ball effect where players who you might think one way about may play totally different with Ball because that's that's what happened for him in college. Yeah, for sure. And you know, let's bring this back to reality. Like his shooting percentages haven't been excellent this week. Three point shot definitely hasn't been there. He had some turnover issues early. He's not a perfect player, but. 
he has been a phenomenon. I mean, when I look at some of the best summer league guys, you think Damian Lillard was MVP. You know, Blake Griffin really made a big statement when he was here. Lonzo is younger than those guys were, and he's the first one. I mean, they're selling bootleg Lonzo t-shirts outside, you know, and, and he's leading <laughs> sports center serious? with his... I'm serious. And, and, BBB, and he's leading sports... Like, wrong, like the BBB in messed up font or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Folex BBB, but, uh, <laughs> or the U.S. Polo Association BBB, but... Uh, you know, they're leading sports center with his shoe, uh, you know, conversation. I mean, what do you think happens there? Because, you know, LeBron shows up, he's sitting courtside. And the next day he's wearing Hardens for Adidas. The next day he's wearing Steph's Under Armors. Then he wears Jordan's, you know, after LeVar kind of publicly took some shots at Michael Jordan. And that seems a little weird. Uh, is he kind of trying to recreate a market here for himself? And, and how do you th- see this going? Or do you think he's going to stay independent? Or are they trying to like, I don't even know that the planning is as sophisticated as everybody thinks. I think it's more <laughs> kind of how do you stay in the conversation? And they hit on something, and now they can keep changing it. And I mean, it, you might be right that they're trying to build a market for them, but I also think some of what they've done um, is sort of on the fly, and it's sort of the, the idea is to kind of create attention and create people talking about it. And really, I've never heard – I feel like, you know, we cover this stuff. You're in this probably more than I am as far as the shoe game, but it's always sort of simmering below everything with Durant, you know, stuff with LeBron, um, with Curry and that whole dynamic there. But I never feel like it it doesn't really seep into the mainstream as much as it has right now. It feels like ball is kind of brought the shoe wars phenomenon, you know, to the mainstream fan in a way that um, really few people have. I think Ethan Strauss's story on Curry last year sort of did that in a way and um, really kind of captured that audience. But yeah, I mean, clearly, because what's funny about Ball is like when you talk to him, there's not a lot of personality there. Like he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's going to move product necessarily, but he's kept himself, he keeps himself in the spotlight either through the dad, now through the shoes in different ways. Because I don't even know that as a player, I mean, he is a flashy player, but it's more, it's still in more of that Jason Kidd vein than it is in, especially the Curry vein that his dad likes to talk about. Yeah, I was going to say, the kids still love him. Like, he is definitely boring on camera. I mean, he's yeah, not giving, he's like, man. as quotable as Lavar is. I mean, I've watched every single press conference that uh, Lonzo's done here, and there's basically been a grand total of maybe one or two quotes. And it's like Mamba mentality or, like, fear the beard. It's like yeah, the, it's the scripted. Level. I mean, he's Kawhi Leonard yeah. level bad as far as an interview. Yeah, but the kids still love him, and that's sort of where the Steph effect is coming in is where I'm not sure that you know the teenagers are looking for the same things that us media members are looking for. I think they <laughs> think Lonzo's the coolest thing out right now. So you know, more power to him. Look, we could talk about Lonzo probably for an hour, and maybe we'll double back when we get some Lakers talk a little bit later. But I really want to dig into this Paul George trip to Oklahoma City because uh, you mentioned Paul George. You know, his experience in Oklahoma City was basically the Skirvin Hotel and the arena you know, my experience in Oklahoma City extends a little bit further than that. You know, I, as regular listeners know, I'm a big boot barn guy, banjo museum guy. I kind of hit all the big spots there. What is your experience? like? I kind of feel like you're sort of the king of Oklahoma City, Lee. You've been out there writing. You know, you get all these great details on Sam Presti. I mean, what's your OKC experience like now? Like for what summer league is for you, that's like Oklahoma City for me. I feel like I'm like I could probably work for the Oklahoma City Chamber of Commerce. You know, my Oklahoma City experience was when they were an eight seed and the Lakers were the one. I got assigned to do the Thunder because for about five minutes there was like this. I remember the office going crazy. There was like one day the editors convinced themselves the Thunder was going to win that series and they were going to be like you know there's never an upset like that. They were going to be like this hot team. They were so young. 
And so I remember talking to people, sort of meeting people in that organization. And then that next fall, which would have been fall of 2010, I went out there. And it was amazing. Durant was just gotten done with that world championships when he played so well. Harden was new. And I remember riding out in a pickup truck um, with Durant and a bunch of those guys and to this hill, like way out, this subdivision, way outside of town. And they had this hill that all these guys ran in. And it was just exactly what you would have expected. It was like Oklahoma City felt so small and pretty rural. And those guys all sort of would hang out at Durant's house. And he had this deal. He'd buy like, I think it was Wingstop or somewhere like that. He'd buy like a hundred wings for a hundred bucks. And they would just all go to his house and play video games. And I remember going to the memorial with those guys. I actually have a picture on my desk of it's Harden and Ibaka. And I'm there like scribbling like a fool as they're taking him through the memorial. And I just became so interested in how the bombing fed into the team and how after the bombing, basically every tax initiative they proposed there got passed. And so they started just building all, you know, all this new infrastructure, including that arena, eventually the practice facility. Every time you'd go there, it's like you know, back in the days when you had like the old GPSs, like the Garmin, it would always be messed up. Like your GPS would be worthless there because they always would have built about 100 new things in the time <laughs> between you went. So it always sort of to me was – was special but also interesting it was like are they going to keep this little crew together that has all this that would sit together and play video games all night and eat a hundred dollars and wings together and you know it was it was so charming at that time and you know they would always talk about how they would and obviously then harden leaves and i think what's so fascinating about oklahoma city is as small of a place it is as it is small of a market the story there has never stopped changing. It's there. It's constant movement. It's like we think of all the drama they've had between Harden and the injuries, and then Durant, and now to have Paul George and to kind of, you know, this team that is so, this organization that is pays such so much attention to detail now has this opportunity to host a year-long recruiting visit, and they're going to leave no stone unturned to the point where they've got like his favorite sunflower seeds and his favorite like fruit gushers in his green room when he arrives. That was what was sort of interesting to me in the first couple of days George was there is just how ready they were for him, how much research they'd done to the point where I, I don't know if he was freaked out by it or impressed by it, um, but clearly he's going to be treated in a way that – Fresno State, Palmdale, even the Pacers. I don't think any. I don't think Paul George has ever, you know, been treated to the kind of adulation he's going to receive in Oklahoma City for the next nine months. Yeah. So let's talk about that welcome party because when he shows up in in your first story you did with Paul George, he's like, "Hey, I hear there might be people at the airport." And then the second story you do five days later, it's like it's the most people ever at the airport since the 2012 Finals, right? So uh, it hit him real quick and. I guess my question about the welcome party was, did Go back this one feel... Second, back one second. That, that, yeah. There was a great tweet from Fred Katz in Norman, my guy. He said, like, Oklahoma City fans have this weird sense for when to go to the airport. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> they always know when the plane is coming in. And, like, I don't know if, like, Sam Presti is able to sort of communicate telepathically, but I am fascinated by how they all know to go to the airport. But anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. Uh, Oh, no, no. Like, they got the flight aware stuff going, just like college football fans. I think yeah, that's exactly. where it comes the from. And and then and they got a great blog community there, too, podcasting community there. I could probably shout out five different guys, but we'll we'll move on. So my question is, did the welcome party, and we'll get into the details of that in a second, but did that feel like a correction 
from Sam Presti or like an overcorrection based on the Kevin Durant experience or maybe even the Harden experience because it seemed so big and and uh, in scale, right? Like there was almost no punches pulled, like you're saying, with the, the little details, but then just also the scope of it, like hundreds of people there kind of celebrating him just showing up. Uh, this is very unusual, I think, by NBA standards. You know, if it's not the big three down in Miami having their little parade, I'm not sure really what else we compare it to. Did he feel like, did Presti feel like maybe he didn't quite do something right in the recruitment of Durant, or did he take some lessons from the recruitment of Durant to say, hey, we need to change our uh, approach here with Paul George? To me, there's been a correction there going back a few years to, I mean, you remember some of the criticism there about how it was, you know, they're a, they're a tighter organization. It's a little bit more of a, you know, of a straight-laced feel. And I think for them, it was looser. Like there was something kind of loose about that whole atmosphere. I mean, it was open bar. It was, was it Lance Fresh or on the, um, you know, on the mic. And it was like, yeah, it was more of a party. And I think so many of, you know, so much of what you hear when you hear criticism of them, I guess, is that it's, you know, that it all feels a little bit more uptight than that. So that was kind of the correction I saw. But they also do sort of take chances with these things. Like even with Durant, when you go back to the MVP speech, like having all the teammates behind him, I'd never seen that. You know, they, I think that they have, you know, staffers there, like Matt Tumbleson is great. They have a great PR director, Matt Tumbleson, and he, I think, thinks these things through very seriously about, and it, it was more, I think, Paul Rivers' brainchild, too, than it was even Presti's, that Paul George welcome party. It was, I think they're trying to match the player with sort of an atmosphere. I mean, they give a lot of they give a lot of thought to these things. They might, you know, somebody could argue they give too much thought to it, but they they're really trying, I think, to, you know, in this case, make George feel comfortable, make him feel special. They know this is a player who, you know, he never, he didn't go to Kentucky, he didn't go to Duke, he didn't have this sort of recruiting experience, never been an unrestricted free agent or made these kinds of tours. So I think that they clearly were trying to woo him, um, and I think they were fine kind of admitting that or acknowledging that in the presentation. I mean, what better shot? What other so, shot do they have? I mean, they're going to have to they're going to have to distinguish themselves in some way. And so it was a start. It was a first impression. I mean, even when he got to the hotel, Ben, he got to the hotel, he rolls up, and there was a video playing on the um, building across from the coal court, and it said – it said something like "high PG um, lace up practice in five. You know, he kind of chuckled oh, wow. at that. It was like everywhere he went, it was under a banner that would say something. Or, I mean, it was really like even when he was at the bar, um, at the O bar, at the Ambassador, where he was hung out with Westbrook. It's like, you know, they had his favorite foods ready to go. It was like right there, ready to serve him. I mean, it was they were not hiding anything. They were not playing hard to get. I love that the same tactics the Saudi Arabian princes used on Donald Trump is what Oklahoma City is dropping on Paul George. That's phenomenal. Uh, This is more of a a writer question, but how do you tap dance around a guy like Paul George where he's giving out every different signal in these interviews? You know, at one point he says, hey, Oklahoma City feels like home. You know, I was originally spent a lot of time way outside Southern uh, L.A., fishing or you know in the deep south with his family then you know the next quote he's saying well you know I'm open or the next quote he's saying well you know I'm interested in the Lakers maybe if a bunch of guys recruit each other and all go there and play together how do you handle that because and I guess I'm wondering do people look at you now and say hey you know what's Paul gonna do or or give me the the true story I mean are you getting that a lot from readers and 
clearly you have to kind of present all sides here when a guy just doesn't know. I mean, how could he know, right? Yeah, and I think there's kind of an assumption, right, that he'll – like I listened to your and Andrew's um, podcast afterwards because I was kind of in it at the, in the moment. You know, and there's sort of an assumption clearly that, you know, that this won't work, that he'll be a Laker. Um, and, and maybe that's true. I mean, you never know when you're getting played in these situations when someone's, you know, trying to – someone's misleading you maybe. But in this case, I I did feel like he was legitimately open. And, look, I'm gullible, I, you know – Maybe I wasn't being critical enough of him or of his answers, but, you know, I ask the questions, and I feel like in that case you sort of lay out the player's voice. And in this case, he he did seem open to Oklahoma City, but he also laid out sort of the appeal of Los Angeles, and then he said that the overriding factor is is winning. And I think for a lot of people, that's where that's where the Laker thing doesn't necessarily jive because you've got, you got a guy saying, well, I want to win, that's my first priority, and then the team he's theoretically linked to, you know, is a team that's going to lose a lot of games this year. So and that's where it comes in. That's where I'm glad he said what he said about, you know, having to get other guys and they're becoming kind of this snowball effect because clearly that's the only way the Lakers and winning would go together is if there's more there than Paul George. And, and maybe he has reason to believe that there will be, that he can recruit, you know, someone significant someone like LeBron James or something like that for that other slot that the Lakers will have because otherwise I don't really get where I want to win big right away and the Lakers necessarily fit together do you yeah, for I mean, sure. how, you know, how do you how do you like how do you reconcile that that a guy who says he yeah. wants to be because I didn't I'll be honest going into this I didn't think George wanted to be part necessarily was driven to be part of a super team or really wanted to go to the Cavs. Everything I'd heard was more that he kind of wanted to be the face of his own of his own franchise the way he had in Indiana, but maybe in a different market and give it a different shot. And the one thing I came out of this feeling like was that that was probably inaccurate, that really if another super team is formed as a response to the Warriors, that he is likely going to be a part of it and a linchpin for it. Yeah, you know, I think the finals and how they played out probably changed a lot of guys' minds. And, you know, whether it's Paul George, Chris Paul, just like maybe solidified their opinions of like when you see a team play as well as the Warriors did, if you want to have any shot at relevance, and I think he mentioned, you know, his hope was, hey, we can maybe make the conference finals or pull a big upset on Golden State. Uh, that was Paul George speaking about this coming season in Oklahoma City as sort of his goal. I mean, I think to me that tells you they're kind of looking at this whole thing uh, through the Warriors' prism. You know, I jokingly called uh, Paul George loose lips Paul throughout the postseason because he was making it very clear he was unhappy, but he wasn't doing quite as good of a job of explaining what it was that he wanted. And in your first piece, I believe, with him, he's talking about Indiana and how he felt like they were rebuilding. He was sort of the last guy standing. They wanted to go into a different direction. He didn't feel like they could sort of ever get it together. Uh, when you were coming away from that part of the conversation, was there anything kind of going on in your head of like what the Pacers could have done differently or could have done better? Because Larry Bird tried a whole bunch of different things. He tried to go smaller, tried to go faster. He changed the point guard up. You know, he got rid of Hibbert when that was clearly not working. Uh, and none of it uh, really worked. And it almost goes back to sort of the competitive balance article you wrote during the playoffs. You know, are these small market teams just kind of now in a position where if you get a star, you've got them for seven or eight years and, and then you're really at the mercy of what those guys want to do. I mean, did you see anything or did he hint to you anything that could have gone differently in Indiana? Because we're getting all these questions from Pacers fans of like or other small market teams. Hey, why should we care? You know, where's our hope? Uh, are we just always on this clock for guys leaving? And you know, the last couple of years, it kind of feels like our answer is like, yeah, sorry. That's just sort of how the NBA is going right now. Yeah, there's a real 
it feels like hopelessness among small market teams right now. And I mean, you talk to small market GMs, and they feel it. I mean, I think that the Hayward, the Hayward one was another big blow. I mean, I think there was a lot. There were a lot of small market GMs that day feeling like, what more can you do? You know, Georgia's team. I mean, the Pacers, they did try a lot of different things, but they didn't necessarily have another high-level player with Paul George. I mean, you have Miles Turner, but you didn't have necessarily a, a co-star for him. But you look at a team like the Jazz, I mean, what more really could they have done? I mean, they built that thing the way the NBA says you're supposed to build it. The Thunder clearly did everything you're supposed to do as a small market team, you know, with the exception of Harden. And I'm sure Durant would have hoped they would have, you know, traded in some of those younger chips and, you know, tried to have – you know, try to muscle up for a year, make the window as wide as you can, maybe instead of open as long as you can. But still, those were high-level small market teams, and at some point I think you wonder if they can't keep their guy, well, then who can? You know, I, so I'm sure there is a, you know, a feeling of desperation among, small market, among the small markets, and I don't, I don't fault them. I mean, when you see what's happened with Golden State, and it's – look, all the credit to Golden State and – but when you see the ramifications of the spike and of the Warriors and how dominant they are, you know you see all this superstar consternation happening, small market or not, and then sort of these small markets getting left behind. I think it's all sort of a result of the dominance of the Warriors and guys not wanting to feel like they're spending their primes in complete irrelevance. And maybe guys need to start looking at their legacy and their effect differently because it, it could be it could be impossible to take this team out in the next three or four years. And I, <laughs> so I and, I and I say that like I did a story with Iverson recently and for our Where Are They Now issue and like you know Iverson has you know you put aside some of the the issues and troubles he has he has an incredible legacy there without having a championship and now there's this feeling like you know you're nothing if you don't win that title but that means a lot of guys are going to be left as nothing potentially if Golden State keeps this up and there's no massive injury. Um, so I just think there's a lot of consternation in all of these places around the league with the superstars and especially with the small markets. Yeah, for sure. And it seemed like Westbrook was headed that direction, playing martyr ball last season. I mean, you could totally see him as That'll like, you know, him. the 21st yeah. century Iverson. But I, yeah. think well, I don't think that's a bad play. I mean, I'm not saying it's not as a competitor that might be the, you know, not the best play. But like from someone like me who's kind of looking bigger picture, you know, if you're not going to win it, at least he's going to have. I mean, if he's going to stay there, even if he doesn't win it, he's going to have something, you know, to hang his hat on forever, legacy wise. That you know, some of these guys might be. All I'm saying is some of these guys might be chasing their tail. I mean, will Houston really be able to break through? with what they've done and, and take out Golden State anytime in the near future. You know, even with all this stuff with LeBron and, you know, let's say he did go to L.A. and with George, like with George and Ingram and Ball, I mean, is, is that even enough? You know, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't know if anything's going to be enough. Yeah, well, before we get to that, let's talk about this fit with Paul George and Westbrook because it's going to require a kind of a wholesale, I think, mentality change for Westbrook after last season. And, you know, you dug in a little bit in the second piece you wrote about Paul George to the basketball, how the basketball could work and how if the Thunder front office had sort of designed a player who would be sort of the perfect guy to have alongside Westbrook, you know, it might be Paul George. He doesn't need the ball quite as much, but he can still shoot it. He can still be that secondary playmaker. And he's a really good defensive player, can guard multiple positions. I mean, he's pretty much the guy you want to have. Uh, defending Kevin Durant, and that's why he made so much sense for the Cavaliers. Still not totally sure what happened there in Cleveland, but um, 
How do you that see this pairing working? Like done. Ben, people thought, who I talked to for this, felt like that deal was, was essentially done and that the Pacers pulled out really late, that that, that was that with Denver um, and Love, and that that was something that was very, very close. And a lot of people thought he was going to be a Cavalier. So there was a lot of surprise in the, uh, the, when that didn't happen among some people who were close to I him. mean, it made, it made too much sense. I still don't understand how Cleveland couldn't get that done, and their summer has gone completely off the rails. Uh, but how do you see this pairing with George and Westbrook playing out? Can it work? I guess my concerns are Westbrook loves the ball. Paul George made a real stink in the postseason about having the ball in late game situations, always sort of being the guy to shoot it. Uh, I kind of see Paul George as maybe, you know, like 85 to 90% as good as Kevin Durant. And if Kevin Durant wasn't good enough as that number two to Westbrook, you know, is Paul George really have a shot here? And uh, you know, then I also I think shot selection issues for both those guys on offense. I mean, they've struggled to have super efficient team offenses when they're the main guy. If you put them together, does that solve it or does that just sort of you know exacerbate the problem? Are you bullish on it, bearish on it? How do you see the Thunder kind of looking with those two guys uh, as a pairing? Well, I trust your opinion way more than mine. Whenever I get done with a story, I like emerge convinced that team's going to win the title. You know, I could go like do a magic story right now and make a case for why they'd win it all. Um, so, you know, I'm probably not the best, not the like most unbiased observer after I do a piece on a team. Um, I think it's a good, I mean, listen, I, I think there's a lot of burden on Westbrook here. I think, you know, I mean, we talk about Durant leaving. If he were to have another, let's assume he signs the Supermax and has another player leave in a year, that's obviously a stain that's going to follow him for a long time. So I think there's a lot of pressure on him to make this work and to figure it out. I don't know, you know, I don't know if he's a guy who kind of can do that as far as, you know, ele- as elevating teammates the way some of those, you know, prototypical point guards do. I don't know how much that's part of his skill set, but if it is, if it's inside him somewhere, he kind of has to find it right now. I mean, this is this is the moment for him. A lot of people with the Thunder were saying that they sort of view this for him as as kind of a second chance in addition to for the franchise. So, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to Westbrook and how much he's going to be able to, you know, within himself sort of share with George and play off George at times because George will do that for him. I mean, he can clearly play without the ball. Um, I think it does allow Oklahoma City to go back to sort of guys to return to their natural roles. Like Adams, won't, not so much will be asked of him. I think he should have a, you know, a pretty good year as far as going back to setting those high screens for Westbrook and rolling to the rim. I think Patterson in some ways is a better fit for that than Abaka was just because he's a more natural three-point shooter. And they've got the wing defense. It's like everybody talks about that that's what you need right now, those versatile defensive wings. And with Robertson and George, they have that. And George just plays so well against Harden specifically that I think that, you know, tilting that matchup with Houston potentially is, is going to be big. So, yeah, I think it's going to be, a, you know, I think it's – can any superstar – flourish alongside Russell Westbrook I mean that's kind of the question that's going to be answered this year because you know if any can I would think it could be George I mean he has he brings the same kind of mentality they have a very similar background both guys from LA under recruited I think you'd say they you know they bring it they bring it pretty consistently especially Westbrook I mean George will have to you know some of those dips you saw last year I think Westbrook kind of brings something out of you. Um, I know he did for Durant when he was in Oklahoma City. I think he, 
he will for George as well. I, to me, they're they're going to be right there as far as one of those teams that could avoid Golden State in the second round. And that's it. Seems like you know to go back to that story I wrote about competitive balance. So many teams. That's, I think, what a lot of them are playing for. Can you stay in the other side of the bracket? Can they get in that 2-3 and not get in the 4 so you don't have to play? Especially if George is setting a bar at conference final or bust, can you get in that 2-3 spot and not in the 4 spot? You know, your point on Westbrook is great. I mean, this guy averages a triple-double, first time since the 60s. He's the MVP, and he's probably going to have a more intriguing and interesting season next season than he had this season because it's going to be a referendum on him as a career, not as just a stat compiler. And We know what he can do compiling stats. Now it's sort of about uh, the teamwork framework. Hey, real quick, uh, do you think he's going to sign the extension this summer? Yeah, I do. But, I, you know, obviously the delay gives everybody – you know, it, it makes you wonder, but, you know, he's a guy who does things on, even last year, it took a month after the Durant, after Durant and he had that deal in front of him. He had time. Um, he had that deal in front of him for a bit. Was it, a, was it about a month, I think. Um, so the deal's in front of him. There's, there's too much confidence, I feel like, coming from Oklahoma City um, that would lead me to believe, I, I mean, I feel like he'll sign it this summer, but yeah, I mean, you don't know until it's done. I mean, clearly, people there, it's like they've been burned enough at this point that they're not going to feel confident until it's its all done. I, part of me had thought that he might do it, actually, while George was there, that that might even add to sort of oh. the, the pageantry <laughs> of the moment, but clearly that didn't happen. But it yeah, sounds I like a fraternity think... recruiting trip, right? Like, every, put as much pressure on the guy as possible. It's <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah, exactly. here's Westbrook signing his deal right in front. You can sign next, you know? Yeah, and like I mean, they've got a, they've obviously got a long way to go. I mean, when he said that line about you know conference finals or upset Golden State, that's a pretty high bar. I mean, do you think that team? Do you think they can reach that bar? Do you think they could get to the conference final? I don't think it's out of the question. I mean, I think they're clearly in the top four in the West. Uh, San Antonio's summer has been quietly fascinating because it's like they're punting completely for next year. Uh, they're letting guys who you would consider, you know, to be pretty good values out the door, like a guy like Jonathan Simmons. Um, they seem like they're working on a master plan that maybe hasn't revealed itself yet, which is kind of quietly, you know, titillating. Uh, with you, Houston, I like what they idea, did. I, right. That goes. Well, yeah. yeah well, let's idea. let's jump into it because you said LeBron doesn't get Paul George. I mean, that clearly puts them closer to Golden State. Instead, now I think they're summer, they're farther away from Golden State. So now when we're looking ahead to next summer, LeBron's choices are stay in Cleveland. Uh, they've got most of those core pieces together. Uh, I think a lot of people are talking Lakers, you know, this LeBronzo idea where he goes, uh, maybe brings another star with them. You pair them with Ingram and Ball, and all of a sudden you've got a team that, you know, should make the Western Conference Finals at minimum, uh, or potentially the San Antonio Spurs banana boat, uh, which I've put out there. I mean, San Antonio is the one situation where I think the banana boat could actually be fun because Popovich would get a lot out of, uh, you know, Wade and, and Mello without, you know, those guys playing too many minutes. Uh, they just got Rudy Gay this summer, so it kind of is like a test run for you, Carmelo Anthony, who's sort Paul of like. in that boat, too? Are you putting Chris in that boat? Absolutely. I think that's uh, his free agency next summer is a huge story to me because he passed up so much money. He's taking a test year on Houston. I don't think he's necessarily in Houston for long term. Do you feel differently? I mean, no. I mean, I guess if it if it completely backfired, I was just curious if you were putting him. So you're assuming oh, I want... that you're assuming that the Harden Paul marriage doesn't work, and he's and he's out of there in yeah. a year. Huh. I want the whole. Well, here's the thing. It's kind of a negotiating tactic. I'm gonna be. 
yeah, I want to I want to say I want the whole boat so that I can just get LeBron with Kawhi. Okay, that's sort of my I'm going to reveal my hand here is like if I argue for all four, if I can just get one, it'll be great because I think LeBron and Kawhi under pop would just be unbelievable basketball and so much fun to watch them go against the Warriors. But I think you can make the case for the whole boat there because Parker's fading. Uh, you know, Patty Mills to me is a trade asset. You could plug in Chris Paul there. He was already kind of rumored with interest in San Antonio. If the Houston thing doesn't work out, go ahead and slot him in. Wade's going to be looking for a team. And Carmelo, potentially, uh, depending on how this season goes, he could be looking for a team too. Uh, I just think if those guys are going to get together anywhere, it makes so much more sense there uh, in a situation that could actually make the most of all four of their talents and, you know, really muster uh, a true uh, shot at Golden State than almost any other situation out there. I don't know. Do you feel differently or the same? I can't. I, you know, I can't. Speak for the, I don't know about the whole boat. That seems that seems a little far fetched to me. But I've always thought, I've always thought that LeBron and San Antonio made you know made some sense if he were going to leave Cleveland, just because I I thought when he left Miami that if he missed anything, you know, besides the obvious, that he would miss sort of the structure there and that kind of the organizational discipline. And, you know, I mean, LeBron has become so, so many of the things that come out of his mouth are, you know, stuff from Pat Riley. It's stuff from the heat culture. It's, I mean, he's become, he's become more of a hard driver than he probably was in his, you know, first turn in Cleveland, like little things bother him. And I think the, some of the organizational sloppiness in Cleveland, I know early on, drove him crazy. And so I always felt like if he wanted to remedy that, you know, that San Antonio was a place. And I also think if you go to San Antonio, there's just something different about the Spurs where you may limit some of the, you know, public backlash if you were to go to a, the Spurs. You know, and I'm, I don't know anything. I mean, this is just pure this is pure speculation, but at least there, you know, you have Kawhi. You have Kawhi already there. It's like the Lakers, you know, going to the Lakers, and to me what still makes the most sense is to stay in Cleveland just because you're in the East and you know you're in the finals every year and you hope somebody emerges to try to beat that, you know, beat up Golden State at least going to the finals. But if he really is going to go West, San Antonio's got Kawhi there. I mean, maybe this hinges on Lonzo's development and Brandon Ingram's development and what he sees. Because if those guys don't play well this year, and what they win like thirty games, is that really is that really going to be enough for him to go there? Because then it really does kind of look like the Cleveland situation with with Irving. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that that's I get, enough. I, think, I don't I, even know that he wants to sign up for even that much of a process again. I mean, given where he'll be, he'll be thirty three years old at that point. Um, and I think he'll age great, but it's like you'd think he would want to go somewhere where there's at least one proven star if he's going to leave Cleveland and jeopardize everything. And I'm not saying that's a sure thing because in the life of LeBron James, everything changes fast. And what looks right now like, oh, it's an inevitability, it will not. It may not be an inevitability in nine months. That team, you never know how they're going to play, how Golden State's going to play. Everything changes with LeBron. That's That's rule one. For sure. If he wants to win, there's no better place in San Antonio because him and Kawhi, I mean, Kawhi is going to be the best player who's not LeBron and not on the Warriors in the entire league. Popovich is the best coach. And they've got enough flexibility where they can bring in another star, have a legit big three. And, could they have you know, a third, do they have another slot? Like next summer, could they have – would they have to get rid of Aldridge? Yeah. Or would they have – Yeah, they – 
Yeah, my, my plan involves moving off Aldridge, you know, re-signing Parker to a much smaller contract. Uh, you probably have to trade Patty Mills because he was the one guy who got paid this summer. Yeah. Uh, but Rudy Gay would be able to opt out, so you could potentially give, uh, you know, Carmelo Rudy Gay-like money. You'd plug Dwayne Wade in as, like, you know, second-generation Manu Ginobili. He'd have to retire. Uh, I mean, you don't have to do the whole boat, but you would be able to assemble a really strong a, a big nice three boat. because Kawhi do- – Oh yeah, a, a very nice, nice boat. boat. Yeah, fabulous. What about George fabu- <laughs> and um, what about George and LeBron there with Kawhi? Oh, oh, now you're getting me excitedly. Now, now that, you're speaking my that. language. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think switchy enough for you. Is that enough wing defense for you? Oh, it'd be unbelievable. And here's part of the reason why it works is that Kawhi is a a max player, but he's kind of that mini max where he's on his second contract, not his third. So he doesn't have that insane like thirty million dollar number. That uh, you know, guys like LeBron and and Steph signed for this summer, and you know, Katie could have signed for if he hadn't get, you know given the discount. Kawhi is not at that high of a number, so they've got room to work. I mean, they could. That's why I think San Antonio's summer here has been so interesting because they're really keeping their options open. And when I looked at the guys they did pay, all of them seem tradable. Like I think you can you can move out Patty Mills if you have to move a Patty Mills out. So um, if you had to guess right now. Cleveland, L.A., San Antonio for LeBron next year. Where would you guess? Well, now you've changed my mind in like two minutes. Um, you know, I still, <laughs> this is I, the fun of it. I still don't know why. I still don't know why he'd go to the West. I just it's it's really hard for me to like for me to kind of get past that. And maybe the idea is you got to beat you know you're gonna have to beat him eventually anyway. So who cares if you're in the East or the West? Um, but I feel like there's got to be enough of a preservationist tendency to give serious credence to staying east and i also just i hate make i can i i just don't like making this call on him a year out i just think he's it's too hard to handicap the last time i felt like i i could have and i predict nothing correctly i could have predicted that he was going to go back to cleveland there were so many um he just he left so many breadcrumbs and i know that a lot of people within the game feel like he's leaving breadcrumbs again um, for LA and you know watching Lonzo from courtside and all that, um, but when he went to Cleveland, they had they had a lot. I mean, they, it's not just that they had Irving; they had the Wiggins pick. They had you know Tristan was really close to Tristan Thompson, and I think that there was I think he wanted to complete that circle with the Lakers. I don't I don't know. I don't feel like it's as obvious. It doesn't mean it can't happen. Um, and certainly, if he could recruit another guy or two. Um, he likes living in LA, the business interests and all that, but I'm not ready to concede that this one's, that this one's over for Cleveland. They've still, I mean, Irving is still a, (laughs) he's still a really good player to have around. And I, you know, I, I've always felt like he, he could be a great running mate. What if he emerges this year? What if he takes another step, um, forward? I think that's tough for LeBron to leave. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's still the overwhelming favorite to win the East this year. And I would say even going forward, you know, another year down the road, there's not a clear uh, threat. So, you know, that is a reason. Hey, you mentioned maybe there would be some backlash if he leaves again. I'm wondering if he's now in a post-backlash reality where he delivered the title and Dan Gilbert uh, has made such a mess of this summer by you know not having the front office sorted out, not making any additions, not pulling the trigger on a blockbuster trade, the, the type that everybody was talking about that you mentioned was was available for them. I'm wondering if now it's pretty much clean sailing or as clean sailing as it could get for LeBron to leave if he did need to leave. I mean, uh, yeah, who's going to be mad I mean, at him besides just the diehard hater? Within NBA Twitter and 
like for us and our world, I think you might be right. But as far as like the casual fan, and he's got a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of just people I think follow him who aren't necessarily, you know, well versed in the goings on with the Cavaliers front office and who don't know what who David Griffin is or, you know, what Dan Gilbert don't really care about the moves he has or hasn't made. There will be backlash, even if Durant kind of escaped it and Paul George, and it does feel like times have changed where guys are not being judged nearly as harshly as he was in Miami. I still think the rules for him are different. And if he left, especially for L.A., I, I, there will be backlash. Maybe he doesn't care. He's in a different place in his life. It won't affect him the way it did the first time because it affected him dramatically, I think, that backlash, um, and probably led to some positive change. Uh, when he left Cleveland for Miami the first time, but it'll st- it'll still be there. It'll still be there. And listen, I mean, the guy, you know, he views, you know, he thinks big, and he views, I think, his life as sort of a, um, as sort of a very rich, very large story. And if he has an idea in his mind for another chapter of the story, nothing's going to get in the way of that. But there will be backlash if he left again. I I just I don't believe that he gets. Um, any part of the, you know, when you think about sort of the um, the leeway that somebody like Durant has, I, I don't think LeBron gets treated to that for some reason. Yeah, I, one other factor that could maybe make it a little easier is if Golden State smokes everybody again in next year's well, right, playoffs. And it just there could be impossible. this right. Yeah, there could be that sentiment where it's like, okay, like now we feel bad for LeBron. Cleveland's not good enough. He has to go somewhere else. But yeah, no, he's definitely held to a higher standard. He gets fewer passes than anybody. Uh, I, I completely agree with you on that. Are you? Let still, me ask if, you about if, the if Nike angle. In your head, do you go San Antonio? I mean, is that really, is that really what you think, well, or are you, or is that just what you hope? <laughs> well, here's the thing: the basketball nerd in me thinks San Antonio. Uh, and the sneakerhead in me thinks the Lakers, and that's why I wanted to ask you about this Nike angle, and we had mentioned it earlier because Nike's taking over the apparel deal, right? I mean, their dream is Lakers jersey number 23 with James on the back, right? I mean, how many of those do they sell? How much money does that create? You know, the, the Nike colorways of his signature sneakers, you can already see them. I mean, there'd be 15 different ones. You know, Hollywood Nights, Sunset Boulevard, Palos Verdes Coastline. I mean, these guys would be going all wow, out, right? you really have given this some thought. You've gone all the way to PV with it. <laughs> yes, I really have. But I think if the, the business move, not just from LeBron's business interests, right, but like from his corporate partners uh, and Nike being, you know, kind of primary among them would be salivating at the idea of the LeBronzo Lakers, especially if you can get Lonzo to, to sign up and have his, you know, a Nike sneaker as well. It just... Seems like this would be the golden goose for them. It would also put them in a situation where, you know, Lakers, Warriors, kind of natural little rivalry there. Uh, it would kind of, you know, keep Durant and LeBron kind of at the center of the NBA conversation. There'd be a lot of reasons why Nike would want this to happen. And in your story about Kevin Durant, you may have had a really interesting quote. I know I've talked to you about this before, but it was basically Durant saying, you know, there's one guy in the world who can sort of relate to the type of pressure he was feeling to win that first title. And uh, and that was LeBron. I'm wondering now if LeBron is back to feeling that pressure too. Like if you if you don't win, any year you don't win, that pressure kind of gets thrown back onto you. And uh, maybe that would motivate him towards this kind of big blockbuster type of uh, of move to L.A. I think the pressure is about not winning. I think there's also pressure as far as the window and wondering how many you can win and have the Warriors just kind of made off with the league where they're going to win every single championship for the rest of his 
supposed prime whenever that you know that is. So I, I I don't think the pressure for him ever goes away necessarily. It's like a year ago, you know, I remember thinking, oh, the pressure's off and he can kind of relax for the first time. And I went out right around this time and saw him at this camp he was doing, and he he immediately says, that's when he said, I'm chasing the ghost. The ghost played in Chicago. <laughs> you know, so it's like he jacks up the pressure on himself. I don't really think. I think there was a time probably when the pressure bothered him. Now I sort of think he sometimes can't function without it. You know, I, I don't know that he – I think he likes to be in the center of, of all of this, of the of kind of the mayhem. But I think at the end of it all, you know, and when, he, when Durant talked about that pressure, it's the pressure to – it's the pressure to win, it's the pressure to be considered the best player in the world and win simultaneously. So can he do that in L.A. with a 21-year-old point guard? You know, as good as we think Lonzo Ball will be, does he really believe that, you know, because Lonzo Ball is not going to be playing off the ball where LeBron's bringing it up every time and can do, you know, he's not going to play off him, I would think, the way Kyrie Irving does. So does LeBron really think that could net a championship? And that's, I think that's going to be a main question. It's like, and that kind of just depends on who else he might be able to get there. Because if it's just, if he's just going for Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram and the Palos Verdes coastline shoe and the Rodeo <laughs> Drive colorway, I don't think that's enough. I don't yes. even think that's enough to appease Nike. They need him to be the champ. They need him to be the best player in the world. And it, it is a funny thing when you think about. And I know Andrew's been on this, and I totally agree with him. The idea that you know Nike and Durant sort of dimmed Curry's Under Armour star, but in doing so, they sort of they elevated LeBron in the moment where LeBron was clearly the best player in the world. But in doing so, you know something has changed as far as the dynamic of of hope around LeBron's championship count and when will it be able to rise again. And I, you know, you're putting a lot. You're asking a lot of a 21-year-old point guard if you're thinking he's going to lead the team to take down the Warriors dynasty with LeBron playing, I suppose, off of him, right? I mean, wh- how would that even look basketball-wise, Lebronzo? Yeah, it would probably be Lonzo on the ball, and, and or just kind of taking turns. My turn, your turn. I mean, the other thing is, and if Lavar, if you're listening, you can just turn this off for like 15 seconds, but. Lonzo would be an incredible trade chip too. Like if you're really trying to, you know, go big with the Lakers, if you had LeBron and if you got somebody like Paul George in, and if you wanted to, you know, turn Lonzo around and trade him for an established star, I mean, I think, you know, especially one who maybe has a year or two left on his contract, kind of the situation that Paul George was in, say last year. Uh, I think you can get a lot for Lonzo at this point, given what he's shown during summer league and just, you know, the, the high level passing that he brings to the table. But that's too crazy uh, let's take a me. step. You, 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 you I know. went too far for me. <laughs> I know. And I, actually, I was going to say. The <laughs> cliff. Well, I was going to say, let's take a step back because how do we really get here where our basically our job right now is to feel through these kind of conspiracy theories or these completely uh, insane uh, setups, you know, our 12 months uh, away that you can't really predict. Uh, how did the NBA get to this point where this is how we talk about the sport and not the X's and O's on the court? Like maybe we did, I feel like we did more even three, four, five years ago uh, than we do today. How are you getting to the situation where you have to run around and not write just one, but two stories about Paul George, who isn't even a free agent yet? He's 12 months away from right. his free agency. And and, people write him a year uh, how, ago. I know. Well, I think, <laughs> I think it was going on before. I think, you know, and I think they, you know, I 
I hate when people talk about the AAU influence, like it's some horrible bo- boogeyman because all these guys played AAU, and there's a lot of good to it too. But I think that that's part of it. I think that that I think the Heat probably was the first incarnation of it. But to me, Durant, that day changed everything. I mean, that's why we're having these conversations when we can sit here and go. Well, Paul George and LeBron and Kawhi Leonard, do you think that's enough? It may not be enough. Like, that team may not be good enough. Like, this Cavs team, it should be good enough. That team would have won a title in a, in a lot of years with all that shooting they had around them. And, like, this Thunder team with Paul George and Westbrook, you know, and Steven Adams, and that should be a – that should be a pretty good team. But Golden State has just changed the math on everybody. And I don't know, you know, given the way the salary cap is now as opposed to where it was a year ago, I just don't know if it's possible to cash them is all I'm saying. I don't know that, like, you can out-talent them. I think it will have to come down to a team that has the right matchup. And that's where Cleveland probably missed the boat this summer. But it seems like a team is going to have to gear toward that singular matchup because I'm not sure a team will ever have – you know, the setup contractually when you go back and everybody knows the history of Golden State's contracts and then the spike. I don't know that any team will ever again have a confluence of events where they could get to a stage where they're as talented as the Warriors. Now, look, a few years, obviously those tax bills will come due, Clay's contract will come up, and maybe it'll change. But for right now, it feels like all of these guys are going through these existential crises like how do you match up with Golden State? How do you do this? And it will take all of these gymnastics you're going through where you've already got Lonzo Ball traded. I have a feeling they're all kind of in the midst of similar gymnastics because how else do you do it? It's just it's very difficult. to cannot, Look, I, I kind of love it about the NBA this summer is that when I did that competitive balance story, it felt like all these GMs were saying, ah, screw it. Like, we'll just sit back and let them reel off, you know, three or four titles. And at least, at least teams are trying. I mean, they're trying. The thund- that Thunder team is constituted. They can make them uncomfortable. I mean, those wings will, should make them at least uncomfortable. But can you really beat them in seven games? I, I don't know. Do, do you think they're – Oh, for I mean, sure. Do, do you think any team right now has, like, even a re- realistic chance of, of threatening them? Or do you think we're just in this mode of all these teams kind of do, having all these crazy thoughts and all these superstars going through these gymnastics, but in the end it's – it's kind of meaningless. Yeah, no, I think Golden State had the best summer of anybody to me. I mean, they got deeper. They got more balanced positionally. They got Kevin Durant back. Summer. Yeah, no, he, he really did. I mean, well, first of all, Las I Vegas know, Summer League All-Star, Bell. Jordan Bell. Yeah. You know, he, but just the way they put it all together and the way they did it with KD giving the discount, I mean, I'm not sure what more you could ask for. There was no meaningful sacrifice made. They really got deeper and better and more balanced than last year. And they were amazing last year and they were better last year than they were the year before. And they won 73 games that year. So I don't know why we should expect any team to kind of keep up, but your point about the other teams trying, we've said this before, uh, but Sam Presti, Daryl Morey, and even, you know, Danny Ainge, uh, we'll throw him in there too, are sort of off season uh, MVPs for the open floor. I mean, we're glad that they're trying. We're glad that they're not punting because this past playoffs wasn't great. And this next playoffs is shaping up to be better. I mean, I, I really think when you've got rejiggered cores, like in Houston, well, I mean, that has worse. very it high. Be worse. No, it can't be worse. 
Yeah, but like Houston's ceiling is higher, but then they could crash and burn even more spectacularly. Uh, same thing in Oklahoma City to me. Uh, and San Antonio, maybe they're a little bit more vulnerable than they were this year. So I think the West playoffs are shaping up to be really, really interesting. Plus, you're probably going to have some new blood. Uh, you know, maybe Minnesota sneaks in there. Maybe Denver can sneak in there. Uh, so to me, like the Western Conference playoffs is definitely better after this summer, which is good. That doesn't necessarily mean anyone's really going to challenge Golden State. But um, we've kind of moved past this and this kind of goes to the the thing I'm talking about with uh, some of the soap opera type coverage or, you know, the blow by blow. What's this guy thinking? Who does he want to team up with type stuff where covering the NBA isn't really about prognosticating who's going to be the champion or who's going to be in the finals nearly as much as it might have been five years ago, right? Yeah, no, it's totally about because we know that if a team comes up that threatens this team, it's going to have to be this spectacular confluence of events like we've just discussed. It's going to have to be something crazy. And so you start thinking about, well, where is it going to be? You know, who can pull that kind of thing off? And that's where you have conversations like this, like what we've had about San Antonio or the Lakers, because, yeah, that is more interesting. We know who's going to win the championship next year unless there's a catastrophic injury. I mean, for you to say that you think the playoffs will be so much more interesting next year, (laughs) so interesting, and yet in the next sentence – but of course, Golden State will win. It's, I think, yeah. it's revealing in and of itself. It's like, what would be more? What's going to be so interesting about it? Then is it that Golden State, like Golden State or Oklahoma City's second round series against Houston, two teams that you know are rejiggered, potentially crash and burn? <laughs> but I mean, that, that's what's kind of that's what to me is revealing about the whole thing is that you know we're saying we're saying that the playoffs could be more interesting, but they might still, in the end, be completely uninteresting. Yeah, the same old teams are just going to lose in new ways. That's that's where yeah, the interest is coming from. Uh, right. Well, then you have, like, Boston. Uh, hey, like, hey, we haven't even touched on Boston. But, like, you know, I mean, that, that team's got – it's like, are those guys, those three guys they've got there now, is that is that, like, the core of a super team? Or are those, like, three good players? I mean, that's one question I have, like, that people actually know about this stuff. It's like, like, could they have a situation moving forward there where their three best players are actually not – Gordon Hayward, Isaiah Thomas, or Al Horford. Like, if this draft thing shakes out for them going forward, like you've got this guy Bagley and Porter, and I mean, if they draft who they might be able to draft in the next two years, they could have a very unusual hierarchy where you have three max players who, you know, may not have anywhere near the potential of your three younger guys. I don't know. For sure. Well, look, they have the the core of a seven seed in the West. Let's just call it that. No, I'm playing. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that what, what you're hitting on is sort of why they delayed it this year by not taking Fultz, right? They didn't want to have this situation where there was a tussle between a potential Max guy and Isaiah Thomas and a guy on a rookie deal who's expecting every single touch in Fultz. And eventually you have to make that transition because if you're drafting top five picks, even if you're an established contender, there's only so many of the like Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum kind of complimentary rookies you're going to want to use those high of picks on, right? Like eventually you're going to want to get just the best guy in the class who's going to need to have the ball and learn on the job and, and have room to kind of breathe. And if you're in a situation like Boston, that transition's coming. I can understand why they didn't want to rush into it because, you know, they should be in the Eastern Conference Finals next year, uh, just given how weak that conference is. But uh, it's coming at some point. And I think you're going to find a situation where you don't have all three of those max guys still in place uh, once they really land that big fish in the draft. And I'm not convinced it's Tatum, uh, and I'm not convinced it's really any of their other young prospects to date. 
Um, but you know, we'll have to see how next year's draft lottery shakes out for them. Yeah, I guess I'm more projecting ahead for if they could get one or two of those guys going forward with those other picks because it's just I don't remember a team ever kind of being built like that like this is where you're going to have this sort of strange generational break and look it's enviable I mean obviously they have three great players right now without maybe being superstar players and then they'll have you know this younger generation coming in it's just it's a depth of talent that you know is a great luxury but also probably creates some dilemmas that are unforeseen I don't know for sure. Well, speaking of unforeseen dilemmas, let's jo- join me in hammering the player, Players' Tribune, please, because their rollout here of the Gordon Hayward decision was kind of uh, dicey, to say the least. They have this super long piece that comes out way after the news breaks, and you've been in the middle of LeBron James's uh, letter, you know, going back to Cleveland. Right, my players I think a lot of people have kind of well, a lot of people have kind of praised that as you know one of the you know ways for a player to kind of maybe uh, have his story told cleanly, uh, clearly, uh, and you know kind of set the narrative, right? And I think that's what the Players Tribune was kind of trying to do. Uh, from your perspective, when you look at like KD's letter last year, which I, I'm sure you agree that left some th- Thunder fans kind of upset, and then the way the Hayward thing played out this year, what's your perspective on it? I mean. Do you think these players are being served by this by this plan or not? I think it can be done. I think I I don't really see why it's so hard, honestly. I mean, last year with Durant, it was like well, like two hundred words, and I think the word cognitively <laughs> was in the first sentence. Which I've interviewed KD a lot. I've never heard him throw out cognitively, um, and Hayward's was like <laughs> two thousand words. It was, I mean, I, it was like a SI profile um, in his own in his own language. So. I mean, the LeBron thing was really, it was really pretty easy. It was pretty organic. It's like I've interviewed him a lot, and I sat down with him, and it was, I think, 45 minutes in his hotel room or something, and, you know, I asked him what he was going to do, and I asked him why, and I asked him kind of about Miami and about Dan Gilbert and what Cleveland meant to him, and, you know, threw kind of everything I could think of at him, and then went back and transcribed the tape and stitched it together in a way that I thought made sense, um, stitched his words together. So it's really it's not a difficult thing to do because there's no real writing that needs to go into it. You're just kind of piecing together an interview. So I'm not really, I feel like sometimes they're making it more complicated than it needs to be. And the one thing I would say is, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to, you need to ask the questions that are going to, that would be asked by the public, that would be asked in a press conference. You need to, like when I did the the LeBron deal, you had to ask about Gilbert and the letter and how he got, you know, how he got past that. And you know, he can address it in whatever way he wants um, in that situation, given the format. But you do need to address those kinds of things. And, you know, as far as the timing of it and, you know, clearly they they got too cute with the timing of the announcement. I, I don't really understand why that even matters necessarily. Like when I did the LeBron um, essay, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be announced that way. You know, I thought, you know, Woj or Mark Stein or somebody would probably break the story and that I would have his explanation that, you know, because you you want what what the guy's going to do and then you want why. And I was sort of thinking more in terms of the why. And then it ended up being both. Um, But with those sort of Players' Tribune type essays, what you want to leave feeling like is that, they explained why, and that it wasn't explained by a brand manager or a PR expert. Like when I did it with LeBron, it was just it was an interview with LeBron, just like any other interview. It was just told in a different way. So I sometimes think they've probably overcomplicated it, worrying about every 
you know, every little sentence and the timing and should it be 2,000 words or 200 words, the truth probably lies in the middle. I think, you know, as we know, anything under a thousand, no, I'm not going to make a thousand word reference. <laughs> it was like 800 words. I think those things can probably lie in that, you know, 600, 800 word range. Otherwise, it sort of comes off as a little self-aggrandizing, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, they're in this situation where they're chasing authenticity so hard, but the final product is so <laughs> inauthentic. It. It's just right. like <laughs> it's so it's so backwards. Well, you mentioned the thousand word thing. Let's close on that note because uh, there was this little uh, discussion on Twitter going around a few weeks ago about how do people in this day and age, 2017, social media, everything's mobile. Do they still want to read longer stuff? You know, thousand word plus. Uh, type stuff where people just, you know, at the point where they want to click on animal, you know, cute animal videos and, you know, read tweet length things. And you know, I saw both you and Chris Bauer kind of came out uh, with tweets, you know, kind of defending the practice of the longer piece. And well, we you know, Chris we really takes it. We're living in a yeah. box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so Chris really has had some super long features uh, over the past year, you know, Monty Williams and a few others. Uh, you know, you're not afraid to go long too. I mean, what do you say when people are like, oh, the, the the written word is dying or the longer feature is dying? I mean, I'm sure you don't feel that way. I say, God bless basketball Twitter. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think he's probably right. I mean, there's probably a lot of truth to what he said, unfortunately. Um, so, but I do think when you do something of substance and something that's new and original, at least NBA fans seem to read it. I don't know that they read it to the extent that they're reading shorter stuff. Fortunately, we work for a place that, you know, doesn't show me all those metrics or I'd probably just like be crying all day in the fetal position worrying. But, um, <laughs> you know, I do feel like when you write, you know, when you, you write about these guys, these guys we've talked about, and they're only like, you know, maybe 10 or 15 of them. And when you have something fresh to say, and, you know, you can tell a good story about this league, you know, I feel like NBA fans are great readers. I feel like NBA Twitter has become a great place for, you know, for people like me. I feel like those stories are really shared and um, and looked at. And, you know, I think there's still an appetite. As much as you know about the Durant, LeBron, and Harden, and these guys, I still think there's an appetite always for more. And, you know, I still think that there's there's more to say because their stories are constantly changing. Like we're talking about LeBron I remember doing a radio interview right after the LeBron moved to Cleveland, and somebody's like, "Well, what more is there to say? It's kind of over. Like he's going to go to Cleveland and <laughs> win a championship." But there's just there's always more. There's always another chapter with a lot of these with these sorts of players. There are things. The circumstances are changing around them. They're changing their own circumstances. Every championship win, every championship loss, it's like it's another demarcation point in their story, and so you know it creates. It just creates these long-running reality shows, kind of this sort of, I don't know, it's, it's just a never-ending novel, and it's fun to be able to chart that, and sometimes it's 1,000 words, and sometimes it's 3,000 words, and for Gordon Hayward, it was 2,000 words. So, I don't know, I I still have faith that, at least in terms of the NBA, and I, one thing I, about the NBA is I feel like it's not just fans of that team or of that player. It does feel as though your readers can come from everywhere, like I feel as though Warriors fans will still read, you know, a profile of Harden or and, or vice versa with Steph Curry. I think that some of those guys are universal. Do you feel that way For too? Sure. I mean, hey, do you, do you sense that from readers too? That like it, it's less so about your favorite team and more so there's kind of an appreciation. It feels like for almost all these stars. 
Yeah, I think we're getting to a situation where younger fans are identifying more closely with their favorite players than with specific teams, whether that's their home team or, or otherwise. And the level of detail that NBA players have in terms of connecting, especially stylistically with players, like it's not just shoes anymore. I mean, everything from haircut, hairline, uh, shooting sleeves, you know, leg sleeves, wristbands. I mean, all this stuff is just different ways for, uh, you know, younger fans to kind of connect to these guys. And, and that's been a developing process. Iverson definitely played a huge role in that. I'd say Jordan played a big role in that too. But now with all these guys being on every single social media network, constantly able to plug whatever they're a part of, you can just get immersed in it so much more deeply. Uh, and I think the connections there are going to be a lot stronger uh, for a lot of fans uh, than, oh, this guy's you know shooting percentage from the mid-range is 42%. You know what I mean? Like Those kinds of things are, are tugging on people differently. It's both, and that goes back to the, the argument about like the, st- or the discussion about the stories. It's like there's room for both. There's room for it all. There's room for you know, sort of the advanced analytics and that's driven conversation about the game. And I hope long stories help drive conversation. I'm sure short stories do. I'm sure stories about the sneakers do. It's sort of you're understanding all of these different elements. And like people like me, I mean, I have so many blind spots that you help me with and other people help me with. And then there are other people who, you know, maybe don't, I, what I try to give is a little bit more of, you know, maybe some of the human side of the players or some of their life story. And um, so I think it, there's just room for it all. And that's where I think NBA fans right now, I think it's a great time to to consume because there is so much of this is out there. And I think a lot of it is, is really useful. I mean, I know I've, I feel like I'm constantly learning just from being on basketball Twitter and reading whatever people are talking about. For sure. Uh, real quick, because we always get questions from young writers, young journalists in terms of breaking through that clutter, because there is so much of it. I mean, there's so so much content, whether it's video now, social media specific stuff, longer pieces, shorter pieces, beat coverage, whatever it might be. What, you know, if you get this email, you know, this generic email from like, you know, Johnny Journalist 101 in college, and he says, how do I break through? How do I get my stuff read like your stuff is read, Lee? What are some of the quick tips that you just tell them right off the bat, I mean, or, or what do you suggest they try to do? Like what I, I mean, what I try to do is work for a place that gets you one of those credentials so that you're in there, so you're in there and you can ask the questions and you can report and you can start to, you know, understand the game and like another level and talk to those assistant coaches and those end of the bench type guys if you don't get access to like stars and you know you start to. Not necessarily always trust the voice in your own head, but that's like that's reporting that that element of talking to other people and getting to know them, getting to know players, and trying to see what they see, and then bringing that to fans. I mean, fans can, you know, they're not when they're watching a game on TV, they may not may not be watching it as experts, but they're still seeing it. I mean, what I try to do is is use the access that I'm lucky enough to get to take them somewhere where they're not. And if you are lucky enough to be in this business and have, you know, that sort of access, whether it's, you know, a player at his home or whether it's just even in a locker room and working a road shoot around or something like that, you know, you're able to, to take them where they aren't. And that to me is like, is the privilege of it. And it's also the responsibility of it. Awesome. Okay, last question. Let's throw aside Houston and Oklahoma City and Golden State and Cleveland, sort of these marquee teams. 
when you look forward to next season in terms of like a developing storyline or a team that might be a little off the radar right now that uh, that maybe has caught your eye or somebody who you just thought had a really good summer, you're interested to see how it plays out on the court. Is there a team in that category for you that you've kind of got circled for your league pass next year as like, oh yeah, I'm going to definitely catch a lot of their games? Yeah, I mean, Minnesota, right? I mean, isn't that going to be what I feel like everybody's going to say, but I think Minnesota will be that team. It's like we're t- we've talked a little bit about small markets and the struggle there, and I think I think we'd all like to see one where it works, where there is a happy ending. And I'm always, because I am, you know, I have become kind of an, an Oklahoma City chronicler like you are with Summer League. I feel like I'm kind of looking for, like, well, what would be that next Oklahoma City-type team? And, you know, they never made that Jimmy Butler sort of move. They drafted their their stars, um, and it was more about keeping that group together. So seeing, you know, seeing what Jimmy Butler can do for Towns, for Wiggins, and, you know, seeing – kind of the Tibbs effect there. And, I mean, Tibbs now has a player who's, you know, obviously a huge disciple of his who's going to be kind of imparting that message in the locker room. I mean, that team kind of becomes that team becomes pretty interesting to me. And then, you know, we talked about the Lakers a little bit too, but I think even if they're only winning 30 games, just to see the development of those guys, knowing you're going to have people like George, maybe like LeBron, sort of with an eye on that team, makes you kind of more interested in watching them too. Who will that be for you? Uh, they're both good picks, definitely high on my list. The other team I'd add is Milwaukee because I just have this sneaking suspicion Giannis has another jump in him. Like I, we saw the jump coming last year, and he took it even further than we, we hoped, and I really think he's got another one. And now that they're going to be in a situation with – I think Giannis is at the point where, given how the East is kind of thinned out, whether it's Paul George, Jimmy Butler, I mean, he should be the second-best player in that conference, and he should be able to kind of put that team on his back and – uh, I know he doesn't have the most help in the world, but like, does he have comparable help to like what John Wall has in Washington? I mean, to me, he's a superior player than Wall. Uh, I think Milwaukee's got a chance to really make some noise, even though they didn't have the world's greatest summer, and even though the pieces don't really still quite fit yet. Uh, I think he's almost in that situation, sort of like Westbrook last year, where the martyr ball stuff in Milwaukee could could really pay big dividends, just because the talent is so much weaker out there. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that team is if they get Jabari back, like their seed might not even be indicative of how good they are going into the playoffs. Like it seems like that could be a pretty scary team with maybe not a real high seed. Yeah, for sure. Well, if they have a full season in Middleton too, will make a big difference. They played a lot better with him. I think they kind of, uh, you know, they, they presented a pretty scary team there in the first round against Toronto. To me, if he's healthy all year long, they have the chemistry going. They're going to be much better on defense with him out there. Uh, you know, to me, that's just kind of a team to circle. They'll, they'll be fun, and I think they're going to be good too. All right, Lee. Well, you mentioned the Timberwolves, and this brings me full circle because guess who's been out at every summer league game? None other than Tom Thibodeau. He's been watching you know, quadruple headers every single day, and I've got to go join him here shortly for the uh, summer league championship game. I'm sure he'll have a courtside seat for the Lakers-Blazers championship game tonight. Uh, and Lee, have a great summer, man. I will talk to you soon. All right, man. Get home from Las Vegas, or are you just going to move there? I'm actually heading east to, to parts unknown. My first stop is Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, I'm not even kidding. If you're from there, there. Uh, and you're a listener. Oh, really? I've well, what should I look for? Um, not much. You'll, uh, I'm sure there will be some kind of uh, – <laughs> you can watch Summer League tape. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to doing that Tuesday night. It's going to be a, a big party. Uh, thanks again, Lee. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Ben. Take care, buddy. Thanks again to Lee for doing that. Guys, be sure to email all your questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions for future guests to openfloormail at gmail.com. 
five-star reviews on iTunes. And, you know, check me out on Instagram, ben.golver. I'll admit, I was a little quiet in Las Vegas. Everything runs together here. Hopefully, I'll have some good stuff for you coming uh, up over the next couple weeks. All right, guys. Until the next episode, I'll check you guys later. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.